So, you should all have a handout that looks a little bit like this, that has on the front of it uh, a manifestation of my lack of creativity and imagination. Because when I thought that Pastor Booth said, we're going to be talking about investments for your future, he meant that we were going to be talking about investments <laughs> for your future. Um, so I thought, now I realised it was actually more metaphorical than literal, but then I thought, hold on a second, here's a topic I've never heard anybody talk about from a Christian pulpit, so this could be interesting, so we better pray, and then we'll begin. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for your abundant goodness to us in so many ways. How you have blessed us with fellowship and life and with our union with Christ by whom we're united with you and with the spirit who indwells us, uniting us with Christ and with one another. You've given us this glorious and wonderful world to inhabit, to cultivate, to bring it from its created goodness towards its glorified betterness. And we ask that you'd help us to reflect wisely in these next few minutes on how we might undertake that task responsibly and wisely. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To begin, I'd like to ask you to consider some scenarios. They are enumerated on the front page of this handout. Some scenarios to consider. Now, I know that some of you would want to get pen and paper or a calculator and actually work out the answers to these and you'd be capable of doing so. I'm not going to hold you to the exact figures. Um, some of you wouldn't know where to begin and that's kind of the point but what I want to do is to invite you to sort of have a guess at <coughs> the answers and I'm going to read through the scenarios one at a time give you some chance to scribble down an answer or two if you've got pen, which I hope you have and then we'll talk about um, the actual answers in a moment so scenario number one John's laptop John buys a laptop in the post-Christmas sales and enthusiastically accepts the offer of a new credit card issued by the store that gives him 20% off the original purchase price of $1,500. Smart bargain hunter, John. He checks the minimum payment each month box on the application form and heads home very pleased with himself. So, questions. Assuming the annual interest rate and minimum payment are about average, 20, 21% a year, it be calculated monthly, so it be about 1.6% a month, and then accumulated over the year, uh, $20 a month uh, for the minimum payment. How long will it take John to finish paying for the laptop? How many months? Years. How much will the laptop eventually cost him? And then thirdly, how much difference would it make if the interest rate were 1% higher? Have a think about it for a second. Actually, we'll go through the answers to these one at a time, otherwise you'll forget them by the time we get to the end. Anybody want to guess how, how long it would take John to finish paying for the laptop? Yeah, go ahead. 68 months. 68 months. Uh, how many hours of that years? Oh, that's well, thank you. So about six years, just under six years. Okay. Anybody else want to have a stab at this? The answer is 17 years and one month. How much would it eventually cost him? Roughly, yes. Now that you know, it's 17 years to pay it off. It would cost him $4,080. And what would happen if the interest rate were just 1% higher, and let's be honest, you notice it's 1% interest rate difference, you know, 21%, 22%, in a billions, trillions, yeah. <laughs> what difference would it make? How would those things be altered? Which 1% increase in interest rate, what kind of increase in the final cost do you think that would result in? Yeah. Hmm? Extra thousand? Extra thousand? 
Maybe it comes from 5,000 by the end. Anybody else want to hazard a guess? He's a very brave man, John. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, the answer is that um, if the interest rate were 1% higher, he would never pay it off because the monthly interest in the first month would be $20.05. And he's only paying $20 and no cents every month. So in the first month, he would add 5% to the total owed. So assuming that he died in his 90s, and he made this rather rash decision in his 20s, on his deathbed, he would have accumulated a debt of $1,522,000 and the interest payments every month would be in excess of $25,000. 1%. What difference could it make? And here's the interesting thing. Hands up. I'm serious about it. Hands up if you're confident that if I gave you a laptop with Excel or Google Sheets installed on it so you could draw mock up a spreadsheet. How many of you are confident that you could calculate those figures for yourself firsthand? Yeah? I, I believe you, if you've, if you've got, uh, if you've done math at university, I believe you, if you've done math properly at high school, I believe you. How many, how, how many of you think you couldn't calculate those figures? How many of you don't even know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's interesting because the ones who don't know what I'm talking about, you might actually be in the, in the minority, uh, majority statistically because according to one survey conducted in Britain, admittedly Britain, <laughs> uh, something like 60% of people in their 20s don't even know that their credit cards charge interest. Oh. <laughs> Do you know what interest is? <laughs> See you later if you don't. Uh, Jenny's savings plan. Jenny gets her first part-time job at the age of 16, babysitting for a neighbour for two or three hours a couple of nights a week at $10 an hour. At 18, she starts working for a couple of eight-hour shifts a week at Chick-fil-A, because Texas, <laughs> earning $12 an hour. She consistently saves about half her earnings, which is really easy if you're living with your parents. How much will Jenny have accumulated at the age of 22? In savings or what? Just, just saving. Roughly. Yeah, it's quite easy. What are her expenses? Well, she's, if she's saving half of what she earns, Oh, the expenses can come out the other half. Roughly, have a guess. This is, this is multiplication. <laughs> the answer is she would have saved about $7,800 from babysitting and just short of $20,000 from Chick-fil-A. Interesting. So she would have saved a total of about $27,000 from two quite credible part-time jobs as a teenager and a young adult, somebody about your age. And she only saved half of what she was earning. And she's still got enough for a quite expensive mobile phone plan. <laughs> I gather that the average mobile phone plan costs $90 a month. Because my mobile phone plan does not cost $90 a month. <coughs> I got one for my daughter that costs $2.50 a month. Right? If you pay 90 you're not shopping around. Um, <laughs> interesting, so she's just about $27,000 if she had um, just saved it. How much would she have accumulated if she'd given it to her father and her father had added it to his standard of course 500 index tracker fund and it had accumulated the average of that uh, fund over the last sort of 70 or 80 years, which is about 9% a year. She got 27,000 if she just stuck it in the bank account. She got 34,000 if she'd just given it to her dad. Said, hey dad, please stop me spending this. And because she doesn't need it anytime imminently, it's kind of sensible, but um, and to put it in something which might fluctuate up and down in the short term, but in the long term will accrue better gains than just the 0.1% interest you get to the bank. $30,000, that's enough for her to give to her new husband on their wedding day and say, hey, darling, you can buy a house now. 
that's the down payment on that. And all she did was work at Chick-fil-A and use her brain for five minutes. Number three. Jane's skinny vanilla lattes. Jane is Jenny's older sister, but is a few older twice. Is a few years older and has a rather and has rather different financial habits. Every morning she grabs a skinny vanilla latte from Starbucks uh, on the way to work. Assuming she continues this for the whole time Jenny is working as a babysitter, how much do her coffee cravings cost her? Yeah. Uh, is Jenny a babysitter from the whole time from yeah. 16 to 22? Yeah, 16 to 22, six years. <coughs> the six years of... I mean, it's only like four dollars. I mean, come on. And it's on the way to work and I'm tired. How much does it cost? Yeah? Eight thousand? Yeah, it's about... It's actually about six and a half thousand because I'm assuming she only works five days a week, but very good. Six and a half... That's a lot of coffee. <laughs> that's a lot of money to be paid Starbucks. You don't want to go buy shares in Starbucks. Because if you think about it for a second... If you invest that $21.50 a month in shares in Starbucks during that time rather than on the product, you know, I'll leave you to figure that out. <laughs> Finally, Jim's long-term investments. Jim gets his first full-time job at the age of 24, which is actually, that's really quite close to where a lot of you are, like just going to college or just coming out of college or just thinking about your first full-time job, first big proper job. And immediately starts saving $200 a month into a long-term investment plan. Assuming that Jim achieves the same returns as Jenny's father, how much will he have accumulated by the time he retires at the age of 67? Have a guess. Mm-hmm. Like $200 a month, really. <coughs> I mean, that's, that's actually quite small. $20 million. Hmm? $20 million. $20 million three. I'd like to know which fund you're putting in your money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite $20 million. He's investing, so $200 a month comes about $2,400 a year, and he's doing it for $40,000 a year. So, yeah, so he's putting two and a half grand a year in for 40 years. He ends up with $1,168,620.08. All of which is designed to... Uh, oh, here's another, here's another point. Uh, just final comment. So he's, this is $1.1 million if he starts at your age. If you wait 10 years, wait till you're 35, because 35, you know, how swarming with kids, then you start to think about retirement, don't you? Like, when can I retire from this? Um, <laughs> you wait just ten years, so you've only got three quarters of the time now. You have about three quarters as long, actually a bit more than three quarters as long, to say how much of an impact does it make on the final sum that he's accumulated? He loses about 23% of the savings opportunity. How much of the final sum do you think he loses? About a quarter. About a quarter? No. He loses 60-something percent of the final total. Because he waits 10 years to start. Investments made now, as opposed to investments made in 10 years' time, have a much longer time to accumulate. And as I hinted a few days ago, the eighth wonder of the world, according to Albert Einstein, who would know something about wonders of the world, is compound interest, the accumulation of small amounts over time. And all this is designed, as I was about to say, to draw your attention to a number of different things. Firstly, um, you can be on the right side of savings and investments and accumulation (coughs) of small gains by accumulating small amounts over time because you're committed to obeying the Bible even when you stop working and are retired. That is to provide for yourself and not be dependent on others. That's what the Bible tells us that we must do. We must do so by working. And so you could be on the right side of 
compound interest, let's say, by steadily saving to provide for yourself when you're too old and frail or tired. You just want to not work remuneratively so much. Or you could be on the wrong side of it and steadily fritter away your capacity to provide for yourself and those you love. And uh, I suspect if you're anything like I was at your age, you, you dimly imagine that you could work this stuff out if you wanted to. But you have other things on your mind. I mean, most of you, I suspect, haven't been thinking about these kinds of questions. This is correct. And, and you, you know, retirement is for old people. <laughs> um, I've got so many other things I want to do. I mean, I want to live my life, and I haven't got that much money. You know. Life's expensive and so on. And so I confidently suspect that if we did a straw poll, and I'm not going to do this because it's none of my business, um, how many people are actually taking responsibility for provision of your own and other people's financial needs in your old age now, when we excluded the past years. Um, how many of you, I would be very surprised if there are five people in this room who are saving each month with the aim of providing for yourself. And probably those people are people whose employers are doing it for them automatically. And that's irresponsible. Um, it's unnecessary. That's the tragedy. Um, it is actually not difficult to take responsibility for yourself in the long term. Uh, and it is important that you do so, you don't do so. And I've never heard this from a Christian pulpit. And I, I blame myself as much as anybody. I've never talked on this. Now, why, how could I have neglected for so long such a basic Christian responsibility as providing for yourself and your children and your wife uh, or your husband? And they don't, you know, you make a meal, I just work. And anyway, why would a woman not want to work and save as well? Um, I've never made a conscious effort to teach on how the Bible's teaching about work and the Bible's teaching about the doctrine of creation and the Trinity, which implies that the world is fruitful, connects with the practical responsibilities that we have to work and to invest in other people's work. I've never done that, and I repent today. And I'm going to try and put that right. I'm conscious in doing so that I'm scrabbling areas that I do know something about, scriptural teaching, and areas that I know very little about, business, um, the details of investment strategies and so on. I am happy to tell you the investment, um, some of the details of how my family and I try to save what we have. Um, I'm not, uh, I won't tell you in this talk, you want to ask me, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but I, I want to get as close to the nitty-gritty practicalities as Scripture will allow me to. But I'm not going to be telling you to buy this fund and not that fund. You know, that's, that's not what, you know, I'm not a stock picker. This is not financial advice. Maybe one of those long disclaimers, don't I? That's wise Buy low, sell high. Um, and, and so because I'm conscious this subject is new, probably, to almost all of us, I have written a simple summary of everything that I want to say in the next half hour in the grey box at the top of page two. So if you want a second, I'll have some coffee and then I'll read it to you. Godliness matters far more than wealth and wealth itself can be a source of great temptation. However, 
Material prosperity is a good gift of God, allowing us to enjoy God's creation and give generously to others. That's provide for other people. And it's possible, indeed it's necessary, to plan and work for our future financial provision with faithfulness, prayerfulness and humility. We must resist dishonesty and consistently keep the Lord's commands to tithe and to give generously. We must expect to work hard, investing in our own capacities and then putting those capacities to good use. Beyond this, we should consider investing in the hard work of others. Recognising the need to, one, distinguish long-term investment from short-term speculation, two, avoid excessive debt, three, avoid cheats, and four, seek out wise advice. And to the end of expounding that summary, I want to go through, how many are there? I think there might be 12 or 11. 11 one-line statements, which I will read, um, uh, briefly expound <coughs> with some illustrations, and then hopefully we'll have time for questions either straight after this or in the Q&A um, if we have one later this afternoon. So, some biblical principles. First, godliness matters far more than wealth. I'm not going to read all these proverbs, but before we get into talking about money, it is necessary to begin with the obvious caveats that um, the uh, how much wealth you have is not as important as how godly you are. The, the reason I want to talk about this is because of its practical utility, um, because of its um, the fact that Scripture talks about it, um, and because it is if you like, an implication of maturity and responsibility. One of the differences between a child and an adult is that an adult expects to provide for themselves and their family, and a child expects to be provided for. So I do want to talk about this, but the first thing I want to say is that if, if your wealth costs you your godliness, then that's not the aim of this session. I want to affirm the obvious that what the other men have actually been talking about this week, applying the metaphor of investment to our Christian lives more broadly is infinitely more important than money. Like you'd better to have two pennies and give them away and go to glory with Jesus than to have all the world and lose your soul. The paraphrase some of them. And so, for example, Proverbs 11.4 Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Whoever trusts trust in his riches, Proverbs 11.28 will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And so on and so forth. I won't read all those problems, but they're familiar to you, I hope. I'm struck particularly by the last one. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and proclaim the name of my God. My aim is not to help you to get rich. My aim is to help you to be more godly and more responsible. But we cannot evade the simple fact that godliness and responsibility entails financial responsibility. If you are not planning to take responsibility for yourself financially, you are at best being immature and at worst being sinful. And that is the nexus that I want to address. You with me? Second, wealth can be a source of great temptation. Coveting, Exodus 20, verse 17. 
Verse 26. Notice all these different kinds of temptations. Um, verse 8. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He's caught over, overrating this giving a little bit, aren't you? He's not, because the thing is about wealth that it provides a doorway to everything else, material. Um, not life, as too many dead millionaires <coughs> noted, but um, if there's another temptation out there that you could, could be gripped by, wealth will open the door wider to it. Jesus in Mark 4 speaks of the deceitfulness of riches, how they draw our attention away from Christ, or how they give us this false sense of security. Matthew 6, he says, no one can serve two masters. Whatever you say today about your work and your financial provision for yourself and for your family in the future, um, you don't want to be serving the money. And James pointedly remarks that um, these boastful and arrogant men who say today and tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit don't know what tomorrow will bring. You're a myth that appears for a little while and vanishes. You ought to say, it's the Lord will, we'll live. And then we'll do something or other. I don't know. Um, so presumptuous planning, uh, along with all the arrogance and coveting and desire to be rich and all the other deceitfulness of wealth and everything else you can plunge into. There, there's great danger here. And this is actually one of the reasons for teaching it to young adults, but not to 8-year-olds or 12-year-olds. But teach it, I think, we must. Third, however, wealth itself is not evil. It is not true that money is the source of all evil, or that money is the root of all evil. It is the love of money, the desire to be rich, and the deceitfulness of wealth that are a problem, not money, riches, and wealth. And this is obvious if you think about it from um, a number of places in Scripture. Let me um, highlight a few for you. First Kings 3. Um, uh, God asks Solomon, what would you like? Um, and he says, I need wisdom uh, in the fulfilment of the Adamic opportunity to grasp the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Solomon realises that humanity has now progressed to the stage where to know good and evil, to discern good and evil, has been used as a verb discern, not know. And Adam uh, foolishly and sinfully grasped at knowledge of good and evil. Solomon realised it was a good thing to discern good and evil. And so God said, well, because you've chosen wisdom, I'm therefore going to give you riches as well. Which wouldn't make any sense at all if riches were really bad, would it? Like, because you've made such a good choice and chosen wisdom, I'm going to give you this terrible and wicked and destructive and evil thing. <laughs> like that, the logic there just is incoherent. It must be the case that in the hands of a wise man, like Solomon, riches are a good thing. Uh, the same is apparent um, from Proverbs 31, the uh, depiction of an excellent wife. It's just really striking to read through that and note how much of that text is concerned with economic productivity. What is it that makes a woman excellent? It's interestingly, it's not that she knows her Bible. I mean, clearly she does. I mean, she does her husband good and not harm. She's driven by biblical imperatives to live like this. So we, we would certainly say that it is 
uh, a Christ-honouring heart driven by a biblically informed mind that causes a woman to live like this. But in the intensely practical book of Solomon's, of Psalms, of Proverbs, sorry, it's the how you live that Solomon calls attention to. And the things that she does include seeking wool and flax and working with willing hands and bringing her food from afar. So she's working hard, putting, um, putting her back into it, so to speak, Ma- making her house wonderful and uh, the table exotic, all kinds of things that you can't just get by kind of um, uh, what's mail order stuff from Amazon or home delivery from... You can't get home delivery in Texas, can you? I keep thinking of England. <laughs> you get your food delivered to the door. Well, you have to, if you want exotic, nice stuff, you have to go somewhere else. She rises while it's still night and provides food for her household. She's a businesswoman, considers a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard with the fruit of her hands. Her merchandise is profitable. And therefore, verse 20, she can open her hand to the poor and reach out her hands to the needy. Notice the critical uh, implication of some... Uh, not implication, what's the right word? The critical consequence of someone who has worked and laboured to to become materially prosperous. She can actually help people. Like, they need you to pray for them, but they can't eat prayer. Don't you want to be the person who prays and the answer to somebody's prayers? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Again, uh, in uh, the Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Well, it wouldn't make sense, would it? If, a, if an inheritance is a bad thing, for it to be left by a good man. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honour. In the moment, all this biblical material about the danger of wealth is assumptions about its goodness. And so on and so forth. Fourth, for all that James says about <coughs> presumptuous planning, <coughs> presumptuous planning is not the same as faithful, prayerful, and humble planning. And this follows obviously from the fact that if something is good, if there is a good thing, one way to tell whether you've got your vision of it correct is that you are hoping for it, praying for it, <coughs> and seeking to work towards it. Lots of young people, and the men have talked a little about um, marriage and different aspects of how people prepare for marriage. Lots of, lots of young people feel guilty about praying for uh, a husband or a wife. Very strange. I don't understand why, why you would be, why you'd feel like it's somehow bad to pray for something that would be a good thing. And if it's the case that riches, wealth, within the caveats and the framework that I've highlighted already, are not a bad thing but a good thing. Why would it, why would it be bad to pray that the Lord would provide for you in this way? Not riches, give me neither poverty nor riches, but not penury, so you're dependent on other people. And if we're to <coughs> plan for it and desire it, then we need to do so in the right way, faithfully, trusting in the Lord's sovereign providence. Don't boast about tomorrow. You have no idea what tomorrow will bring. Um, the lot is cast into the lap. Every decision is from the Lord. And so we reflect our faith in the Lord by 
living as those who put their trust in the fact that it is God who is going to bring about whatever tomorrow brings. Faithfully, prayerfully, humbly, and therefore not presumptuously, but not not canon for. Fifth, and obviously I hope, if we turn now to the the actual mechanics, if, if you're now convinced that wealth, though dangerous, potentially is good, and it's your responsibility to plan for it, though not presumptuously, you might then start thinking, how do I go about making sure that I'm got enough money to pay for rent or a mortgage, buy a car, feed my kids, wife my wife, um, retire from work when I'm too old to carry on working remunerativity and not be a burden on other people. How do I go about doing that? You might think it's easy to just knock off a bank every few years. Um, <laughs> uh, that won't work for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> um, uh, all of which arise from the fact that dishonest gain will be cursed by the Lord. Precious gains by wickedness do not profit. Righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. And dishonesty can extend more subtly into business demands. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. A false balance would have been used to sell people seven-eighths of an ephah of grain under the pretense that it was a full ephah and so on. And the scales are <coughs> dodgy, as we say in London. Uh, and you see these other problems last one is striking whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household I've actually seen that Um, let me me tell you um, when I moved to Texas I I discovered that there is an organisation in the world that is more savage more brutal than the United Kingdom's uh, Department of uh, well, it's, it's called Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. It's the, the people you, you pay taxes to. HMRC has a reputation for being absolutely unforgiving, brutal. Like, they, they, will, they will delay payments to you for nine months and not even bother <coughs> to notify you. You miss a tax deadline and it's like £100 a day. And I thought, man, there's no, there's no really more savage than them. I'm looking forward to moving to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and then I discovered that there is an organisation in the world that is more brutal than the IRS, they will not stay. <coughs> if you fiddle, they will not stay. You will trouble your own household. And you will tell yourself, I was doing it to provide for my household. There's only a few dollars on the side. They will not stay. <coughs> Immoral it may be to be paying 20-30% marginal tax rates. Do not expect mercy. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. So dishonest gain will be cursed by the Lord, sometimes through such wicked men. Simply, if you're not tithing and giving to the poor, um, the Lord will take the tithe that is his. I don't know what, I remember the day, I think again with my dear friend David Field, he pointed out what the tithe is. The tithe is that portion of your increase, um, and then, if you like, we can talk about how to calculate the tenth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is a little more complicated if you want to start thinking, well, do we need to before tax or after tax? We can talk about that too. Um, uh, my friend David Field points out that, that the tithe is that portion of your increase which the Lord has given you specifically and only for the purpose of giving back to him because it belongs to him 
absolutely. Everything that you have belongs to God in in various senses. Like uh, our body is a temple of the Spirit, it belongs to the Spirit. Um, you, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You purchased you. So we all belong, everything we have belongs to the Lord. But the question is, what may we do with the different things that we have? What may we do with our time? Well, more or less, whatever you like, except Sundays. Sundays, the, the way that you use your time is restricted because that time belongs to God in a certain way. The time is that portion of your increase which belongs to the Lord in the sense that the only thing you may do with it is give it to Him. That's the only thing you may do. And if you don't do it, He'll just take it. You, you may not know that he's taken it because you may have four years unemployment. Um, it was because um, the land had not been given its Sabbaths that the Lord sent the people of Israel into exile. The Lord will give the land its Sabbaths. The money belongs to the Lord. If he, if he has to send locusts to consume it, he will. He has to send in a revenue service to consume it. He will. Um, but please don't. Yeah, everybody tithes. Everybody tithes. The, the only question is whether you, will, you do so freely and willingly with the money that comes through your hands, or whether you just wait for the Lord to strike you somehow so that he takes what's his. And, of course, to those, uh, from those to whom much has been given, and much has been given to us, much is required. And, and much in the sense of the kind of generosity of Proverbs 31, that woman. Right. So now we move into positively. Uh, the specific things that it would be good to do in order to provide for ourselves. And really, everything that I have to say from this point on, it more or less comes under point seven. And I'm going to run through points eight, nine, ten, eleven, um, but I'll do so briefly. So if we're still on point seven in ten minutes, don't panic on Julie, because um, I will move on, I promise. Your most valuable asset materially is yourself. Your own body, your own capacities, your own intellectual capacities, your physical capacities, and the time you have to deploy those capacities. And therefore, in order to provide for yourself, central to provide for yourself is hard work. Hard work is central to material frequency. You will not be able to provide for yourself unless you're committed to working. Um, and there are many, I just want to read a few of these Proverbs just to um, call attention to the obvious. Proverbs 14.23 In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The way with the, the men are full of talk and this, that and the other, they never get up before noon so to do anything. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labour. All day long he craves and craves but the righteous gives and doesn't hold back because the righteous is overflowing with abundance and is able to provide for others. The sluggard doesn't plow in the autumn so he's going to seek at harvest and have nothing. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. And this is particularly striking because it's not that he doesn't have anything. He's got a bowl full of food and his hand is stuffing it and he dies of starvation slumped on the couch with his hand in a bowl of Cheetos because he can't be bothered to bring it back to his mouth. This is a picture of a man oh, to whom has been given everything and abundantly more than that they would need to provide themselves. You've been given an education. You have been sheltered for 
decades from the tedious necessity of providing for yourself so that you can learn and study and grow in strength and stature and wisdom and knowledge. You, you could have spent days and weeks on end doing nothing at all and you come down to breakfast in the morning and miraculously there is still food on the table because your parents have shown, I hope they wouldn't have done that, but um, they should have starved you when you get out of bed before crack of two in the afternoon. Crack of two. But what's happened? Most of you can never see what's going on here. Read The Road to Wigan Pier at George It's the experience of living among and working among coal miners in the industrial northeast of England, northwest of England. What was it called? The Road to Wigan Pier. And then tell me that you had it difficult. I don't care. How bad your mum was at teaching you maths. Like you, you don't know you've been born until you read that book. And, and what, what actually happened is that you should have starved to death when you were six years old if you weren't working. In the ancient world, that's what would happen. Like once you get six, seven, eight, once you get a young man or a young lady get big enough to actually work, they just go to work. It is a luxury and a privilege to have been able to not work productively so that you can. Build your capacity to work productively in the future. It's all your parents have done. They could have sent you out, I mean, the laws of Texas probably forbid it, they could have sent you out to work in the ancient world. Go down the coal mine in the ancient world. Um, not, 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 not very recent, not very ancient world. They could have sent you out to the farm. They could have made you work for money and pocketed the money. They could have done that. And they didn't do so. They let you sit around at home with maths textbooks and geography textbooks and physics textbooks and and then they pay for you to go to college, some of you. Good grief. <laughs> some of you know how much that costs, right? So that you could be productive in the future. But the reason you can contemplate going and working as an IT engineer or earning six figures is that your parents have fed you when you were not being productive. And you have it all. And some of you, unless you change course, will be like the slugger who's going to starve to death with his hands in the old cheapos because he cannot be bothered to put to work what other people have invested in him. How many people have invested in you? How many tens of thousands of hours have they poured into you? How dare we not strive? You see why the woman in Proverbs 31 is up before his life because she realises this. Wow, how many they trained me, even though they didn't have to work, but they, they were training me and helping me. Look how much I've been given. I'm going to work hard. And the most vital thing that we have to do in order to provide for our families, our wives, our husbands, our children, is to work hard. Most people don't know what hard work is. Because they haven't read the road with you here. That'll do a lot of good. Um, couple of theological connections to make here, and then I'll, I'll hint a couple of practical things which may be important. Theological connections, this is connected both to the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is an overflowing fountain of his own being. He, the Father, gives of himself to the Son. And when he gives of himself, it's like he's, uh, this is not a technical description of Trinitarian theology. But we might say he's working to bring the Son into being. The Father gives, he gives and gives freely. 
And he gives everything that he has, the Father and the Son, have all the same attributes of the ones in technical terms. Um, a doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, so there's no different parts of God. There's not like a Father part and a God, a Son part and a Spirit God part, which are all kind of different. Yeah? Everything that the Son has is the same as what the Father has, except fatherhood and sonship. So the Father has given of himself to the Son. And in so doing, the Father becomes the Father. Think about it for a second. Imagine the Father said, I'm going to have a day off. Can't do that because of the time that's eternal. But imagine, just for a second. Um, he said, I'm going to have a day off. I'm not going to produce the Son. I'm not going to bring the Son into being eternally anymore. I'm going to stop working. There's no Son. There's no Son. Is there the Father? The, the Father's being as Father depends on his bringing into being the Son as the Son. Because if I didn't have a Son, I wouldn't be a, and daughters, obviously, I wouldn't be a Father. So, what's happening in the triune life of God is productive self-giving, which brings into being other things, whilst they enhance the one who gives. The Father doesn't lose who he is by giving himself away as he works to bring the Son into being eternally. He becomes who he is. So in God himself is this principle of productive accumulation of infinite wonder and goodness, and God does that immutably and eternally and it's kind of mysterious and a bit, but we'll come to that by the time if you'd like to. Now creation images God in that respect. You could you go out to work and you dig and plant seeds and just imagine you're a farmer and you work and you work and you work and and this all by itself, as somebody once said, the ground produces seeds. And it's like you, you scratch your head and you look at the sun and you feel the rain and you think, wow, isn't that amazing what creation does? You get dirt and grit and water and you sort of mix them up and pull weeds out occasionally because the ground is so productive it even produces things you didn't plant. And then suddenly you get, wait six months and you top it all down. You work hard to get it all harvested and dry the ground and then make the ground. You can feed your family. This happens. And it's the Lord's infinite goodness in creation which causes creation itself to accumulate bounteous wealth as a consequence of our working. And then you, yourself, after you've done that for 40 years, you've become a mature man. You've given of yourself every day, callous hands, aching back, or probably not aching back if you're in decent shape because you're a plumber and like, you know, like me who sits around a lot at a desk and drinks a lot of coffee. Uh, people like me are back from not farmers. These farmers have worked and become mature by giving with yourself. You see, the whole creation is productive because it's uh, made in the image of a God who is productive. Now, just to hint at a couple of practical points here. Um, when you're thinking of education, Clearly, you have to find some way of working out what it's worth investing in. So education is great. Well, when should you stop? I mean, should you work educate 14, 16, 18, 22? Uh, graduate degree, 25? There's a point where my father-in-law wondered whether I was ever going to do a day's work. Study again, Steve. And he's got a point, actually. He's got a point, because... Um, and especially in this country, um, where as all you know and um, my family and I have discovered, to what will soon be our cost, that education is really kind of expensive. Um, and so, I, let me tell you about a conversation I had um, with a young man not so long ago. I, I was 
you were at 18, so it's a little younger than you guys when I was saying, okay, so, um, hey, well, what's up next for you? You finished high school, you're graduated from high school soon, what are you going to do? And he said, um, oh, I'm going to do, uh, I want to go and do it, and I forget what was the um, degree in. It was something to do with theatre or media or something, media studies or tech. I want to go to a local college and, and study that. And my mind was drawn to an article that my son, who's also applied for college at the moment, has emailed me, in which somebody had analysed the actual likely, or no, the, a- the actual average financial return of different degrees that people study at university. And it turns out that the most significant factor is what you study. Like if you go to Harvard and study gender studies and ethnic diversity, then you make a net loss over your lifetime of about a million dollars. Right? Because no one should employ even a Harvard grad with a degree like that. But if you go to anywhere and study almost any STEM subject, you're, you're, it's, a, it's profitable, it's fruitful. And in our tradition, it's interesting, we have placed a lot of attention on the, the importance of higher education for character formation. I'm all in favour of that. In fact, I'm so much in favour of that that I don't think it should be restricted just to higher education. I don't think that you should be doing all your formation in classical literature and history and Greek and Hebrew and theology in a concentrated period of three years between the age of 18 and 21, or four years between 18 and 22. I think we should be doing it for the next four decades. I think all of us should be cultivating that love for classical literature and history. And I believe in that so strongly, I don't think you can actually squeeze it all into four years. I don't think you have enough time. And you can tell the people don't have enough time, because they say when they did their degree in liberal arts or whatever it was, that they read... Um, Augustine, the City of God. I said, wow, how long did that take you to read that? And they said, oh, two days. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm all in favour of character formation. Tertiary education has character formation. Like, you will not find me criticising that. I just think it should be 40 years, not four. But notice this, that at some point, you've got to start paying the bill. So I, I was thinking about this, this young man, back to this guy. Um, I thought, that degree, I forget the title. I said, I couldn't remember where it fell on this scale of how much it's actually going to... whether it's a good investment in your future or whether it's a bad investment. But I'm pretty sure it was probably on the negative end. How many people from that community college end up working in Hollywood? Uh, let me have a guess here. And so I said to him, suppose I asked you a different question. Suppose I asked you the question... Imagine that in five years' time you had to be earning $55,000 a year so that you could pay the mortgage on a house and get married and afford to raise your first child who your wife is expecting. You've got five years. What would you do? And he didn't say anything. It's great credit for thinking about it. And you know, I guess we've got to continue the conversation. But let me tell you, I bet he wouldn't go and do a degree in technical theatre at the Queen's College. Now, it's not that's a bad idea. It might be that it's a great idea. Uh, it might be, and it's none of my business what this young man is planning to do to earn money in a sense. I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. But I do want to call your attention to the, the absolute necessity of planning what you spend money on so it produces an actual return. And it will depend on who you are. So some of you will be not. <coughs> You're not academically the kind of person who is going to benefit from going and doing a degree, and that's great, that's fine. You can, there are many ways that you can and should provide for yourself in that context. That's you. It's not criticism of people who you know, not had such an academic 
On the other hand, imagine or women really, um, actually you're the kind of person who would benefit from that training. And the question I'd encourage you to consider is not what would I like to do? We have been living for about 80 years in a culture which has taught us, it's about 75 years, post-World War II really, a culture in which we have suddenly made the assumption that we get to do what we want to do. Professionally. Where did that come from? For the whole of the history of humanity, people never got to do what they wanted to do. And they were delighted that they got to do something which allowed them to marry and have a family and raise the next generation and give and tie. And somehow we have baptized this notion of what my passion is has got to be what I get a job in. It's like, that's bizarre. And of course, universities and colleges are really keen to cash in on that because they will give you a degree in. Anything you like, provided you're willing to pay 50 grand a year for it. Never mind the fact that you'll be paying, well, you'll be paying off the rest of your life. So there's that. Now then, there's also the issue of um, the differences between people, um, men and women. Uh, and ladies have to confront the complex question of that if I get married and if I'm able to have children and if I do, probably the likelihood is that the total amount of time I'll be able to spend remuneratively working in the field that I would have trained for at degree level, so, is going to be shorter than for a man. Okay? In other words, your, your theological commitments um, to family and marriage interact with actual dollars. This is one of the reasons why this is so important to talk about. It doesn't mean there's a one-size-fits-all. It doesn't mean like I get so sick of people saying girls shouldn't go to college. Right? It, it's it's the well-meaning but ignorant attempts to provide a simple one-size-fits-all answer to a complex question. But it's well-meaning because it's at least trying to answer the question. It's not obvious to me. And I've got two daughters in their teens, they're 16 and 15. And I can tell you it's like with Sixteen and fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> That's lost a year. <laughs> and it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to work out um, what's a prudent way forward. Um, and I, I mean, it, it irritates me when people say it is easy, but it's not as irritating as when they just don't say anything at all, and the you know, young ladies are left with massive debt because some and thought it was a good idea for them to accumulate it. And then they discover, actually, what I really want to do is not work as a doctor, I want to be a mum. Which is a high and noble calling. And part of the problem is that we've displaced it from that high and noble calling because we've put people in a position where really the thing they have to do is to earn money in order... So anyway, welcome to my world. Um, So it's just a mess, right? It's much easier sort it out now rather than waiting for 10 years. Um, now, I've gone already long over, uh, about five, six minutes over the length of time I wanted to talk about. And so I'm going to, um, if, if it's okay, I'll just talk for one minute and give you an indication of the kind of thing that I was going to say in the remaining four points. Um, point eight, distinguish long-term investment from short-term speculation. Um, preamble. Uh, as well as investing in your own work and your own training for your own future, let's imagine that you've saved some money. You could also invest that in somebody else's hard work 
So if I thought that you had a great business idea and you needed $50,000 startup, I might say, I don't have 50, I have five. So if you sold me a 10% share of your business, I could then invest that five <coughs> and then you'd give me 10% of the profit. Okay? So that's investment. I would do that if I thought this man had a great business plan and I had $5,000. Then don't know if you've got a great business plan. Sorry about the money. I haven't got anyway, <laughs> right? Now that's investment. What we're doing is, and, and this is what um, I refer to when I talk about investing in the S&P 500. That's, you, you think this, this um, business is productive. Um, I can capitalise on the fact that God is gracious even to unbelievers who run Walmart and um, Johnson & Johnson and Kimberly Clark and Pepsi by investing in them and reaping the return of God's tremendous goodness who causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's not the same as invest $5,000 today, look at the price tomorrow, see it's gone up by $30 and sell, think yes. Now that's just day trading, speculating, nothing now, nothing. You're not then investing in the long-term future, you're looking for a quick hit. And I'd like to talk about this more, I'm not professionally competent to give professional advice, and I won't do so, but there are some vital biblical principles that ought to be explored, and maybe we can explore together. Um, debt is dangerous, obviously, the borrower is the slave of the lender, but again, beware of the simplistic analysis that says... Um, uh, all debt is the same. Like a mortgage at 2.8% secured on a house where you've got a 40% down payment and a credit card that's unsecured where you're paying 21%. If anybody tells you that all debt is equally bad, right, they just don't understand what they're talking about and you can safely never listen to anything they ever say again about anything to do with numbers. But it's important to know what you're getting into. So don't go leveraging yourself against credit cards. If you have a credit card, pay it off every month. If you can't pay it off every month, don't have one. But the mortgages, it seems to me that in many circumstances that's sensible because the structure of the debt and so on is very different. The business world is full of cheats, number 10. And the Christian business world is no less full of cheats than the non-Christian business world. Um, if you do business with Christians, you must. It's more important that you have written agreements when you are friends with the person you're doing business with. It's not more important, it's just, just as important. Don't, your friendship won't survive your first financial dispute. So it needs to be written down. Don't, don't ever do business on a handshake. And incidentally, um, <laughs> unregulated investments, you know, some guy on YouTube who says, you know, I can teach you how to make $5,000 a month on the stock market. No, he can't. If he could make $5,000 a month on the stock market, he would not be selling advice on YouTube. Right? <laughs> what are the chances of you learning about the wisest and most sensible long-term investment strategy to provide for you and your family by overhearing a conversation in a bar somewhere? And what are the chances of that? No. All of which means, number 11, you need wise advice. Um, so uh, I encourage you to talk to your parents, I encourage you to talk to your pastors. I've read a bunch of books which I'll give you the details of if you'd like. Um, I'm not going to give you financial advice, and so I need to tread a fine line here, and I'll tell, I'm happy to talk privately about the decisions that I've made, uh, some of the bad decisions I've made, that'd be helpful. Um, but don't go it alone. Don't um, just run off, because the illusion of knowledge in areas like this is very strong. And the number of 
con artists and charlatans is very heartening. So the smart thing to do is to read and acquaint yourself. If you want to, if you have savings to invest, which you should have, otherwise you're going to be starving in your 70s. Um, the wise thing to do is to acquaint yourself with some of that material so that you're able to navigate it with wisdom and for that you need wise advice. And I've shot over time. Possibly thank you for your grace and allowing me to continue and thank you for your patience and listening.